The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I am Tyler, who knows a lot of things about these books and is increasingly learning. I actually like them, even the ones I didn't really like that much. And I am joined by Greg, who so far I think is two for two on not hating Wheel of Time books, which I'm going to take as a big accomplishment. Greg, how are you feeling as we kind of barrel towards the end of this book? We are closing in. I I was noting in my copy, it's less than 200 pages. And I, I think I talked in book one, like, you know, when you barrel into like the last hundred pages of a book, usually that's like, okay, I'm not going to bed for a little bit of extra, yeah. just kind of streaming through it. And when the books get this thick, I think sometimes 200 pages is, is where that starts uh, sometimes. So um, yeah, it's, it, it is a funny feeling that because of our format, I have to fight those impulses in myself. Um, yeah. And, and I like it. It's, it's a good self-control measure, but uh, it, things are getting exciting and things are moving uh, together. And I think, think we get a pretty big hint that some of my reconfiguring of my predictions may have been off last week. But let's uh, talk about that in due course when we get to the things we need to talk about. Well, I think we have gotten to the things we need to talk about. That is all of the introduction that I ever need. So I suggest that we just dive straight into chapter 32, Dangerous Words, which begins with the group arriving at Lord Barthanus's manor. And it's basically described that everyone who is there has a purpose. There are 10 Shinaran soldiers who are their escort. And Perrin was left back at the inn, presumably because wolfy powers don't play especially well at a party. But Rand is there because of the invitation and Ingtar because of his title and Loyal because the Carrianen are interested in Ogier and Matt because he can sense the dagger and Hurin because he can smell Trollocs and everyone has a role. And then they show up and they all basically follow their roles for as far as I can tell eight seconds and then it all becomes a discussion between Rand and Barthanis he initially arrives um basically says like I'm really intrigued by what is going on what who are you what is happening and then immediately walks away uh Rand then basically tries to keep moving so that no one will corner him and fails he is cornered by not one not two but three married women who want to make it very clear that their husbands are not around and then Rand flees predictably to Tom whose response to all of this seems to be what do you mean you lost the horn of Valir and do just go sow those oats um (laughs) after he leaves tom rand then has a much longer conversation with parthenis which i suspect will be probably the crux of our discussion of this chapter um there's a lot of back and forth and rand i think thinking he's being forthcoming and actually not giving nearly as much as he thinks he is um and then 
we basically have the chapter very quickly interrupted when uh, Hurin shows up and says, hey, guess what? Um, Matt is hurt. And then they run away and that's the next chapter. So this, I think, is kind of the classic like political intrigue party scene where everyone is not entirely showing their cards, but from the perspective, not of an expert, but rather someone who is just trying to stay afloat. I think it works pretty well, but to some degree, it's a dance I know so well that I don't have as much to comment about it this week. What was your overall takeaway on this chapter? Uh, yeah, it was an interesting chapter because, uh, I think every time we've talked about Deus Demar, um, how'd I do? How'd I do? Almost. Oh, it's, it's it's been a week since we did a long practice session. So, uh, Deus Demar, uh, every time we've talked about before, it's about how like Ran is such a bumbling bumpkin that he's just screwing it all up and getting himself into very deep trouble and so i thought this chapter actually was the opposite of that that this you know he may not be in control and understand everything but he's thoughtful and he seems to be making largely good moves um and i think we had left last chapter where i was saying like you know is this really who is involved all of that and and we pretty quickly get confirmation here that like okay there is dark friends here involved with this guy it's not just a part of the game um that that it is actually something sinister going on um i know some of that's next chapter but we uh should you know it came it became clear when they started smelling things here and so on so uh, i'll throw out that idle speculation and, and stick to okay let's see how well they do when they're negotiating these politics Uh, I'm about to throw out a reference that probably maybe one of the people who listens to this podcast will ever get, but we are in the midst of the chess world championship right now. And this feels very much like a game where Barthanis knows all of the openings and has studied this game all of his life. And Rand is pretty good at intuitive chess. And so he's, he's just trying to get Barthanis off his game and it works pretty well, right? The generic answers and the not giving much away, it seems effective, even if he's not a really well-studied player of the game. I, I, I think mm. that can actually work really well for an opening salvo, even though we feel like Rand probably would be in over his head if he had to stay in carry-in for another month or two. Um, and I think that balance is well done by Robert Jordan, right? He is effective, but you can also still feel how green he is at, at dealing with some of these issues. Um the beginning of this chapter I found really interesting in that we kind of get to see how Varen views everyone in their role in the party. She very explicitly lays out what everyone's purpose is and what they are there for. I'm curious whether you kind of appreciated that in the Ocean's Eleven gathering the party way that I kind <laughs> of did at the beginning of this chapter. I did. And and I, uh, again, I'm, I'm not uh, a fantasy reader, but I'm reading a different fantasy novel in my non-podcast <laughs> reading time. And it was making me laugh because they also had the party scene and the like, who's going to be servants and who's going to be yeah. lords uh, and like the same kind of like strife and discord about, no, I should do this or that. Um, yeah. The one part of the Ocean's Eleven thing that I liked is that Varen was a little uh, reserved about her own role. It's yeah. like, well, of course I'm going and and kind of held back in that. Um, I know you have previously confessed you have a strong soft spot for Varen. And so um, it's interesting to me to kind of, you know, reverse engineer that and see like, well, why does, I mean, she's a scholar, which, which you noted, um, but also trying to understand like, oh yeah, that's kind of one of those moments that is 
interesting as a character and endearing, right? It's like, yeah. oh, she she has everybody's number. And then when she could volunteer her number, she declines. <laughs> yeah, And one thing I will say is I love me some Varen, but I love Varen in the same way that I think a lot of people really loved the portrayal of Thanos, right? I'm not saying that she is that dark of a villain or anything, right? Not a, mm. a giveaway of anything like that. But I find her a very interesting gray character in that her motivations are in a lot of cases kind of opaque and she wants to keep it that way. And so I think you're identifying exactly the thing that I always found interesting about her is the information you get is so sparing. I find myself reading in a lot of cases into what she is saying about others and what that tells us about her. I just find her a, a really interesting kind of puzzle to piece out, especially in these early books. Yeah, well, and I, I hopefully I'm not skipping too far ahead. Obviously, in your summary, you pointed out what I think is the most important part of that opening, which is just that um, Perrin isn't invited. And again, yeah. there's there's this jockeying. It's always hard for me to tell how serious it is between the boys. They're kind of all annoyed at each other. And I think we've talked before when a real crisis happened, it's, happens, it's like that all falls away and we get yeah. to the serious stuff. But there is just a little bit more of that kind of rubbing the wrong way, a little uh, friction um, there. So after that, what was really striking to me is this entrance into the party. And it was striking to me how everybody in the room got the number of the party. Now I'm using that metaphor too often, but understood the party very quickly. Yeah. And it was like, boom, Aes Sedai, boom, Ogier, and then boom, Heron marked blade. And so yeah. the the third one of those very much, I, I think the other are outwardly clear, but it's like they're narrowed in and focused on him. And if that's his reputation or if that's just a, a keen sense of observation, but um, certainly if the, the Da'es Damar is to collect the fanciest uh, humble figures for your little court figurine collection, uh, obviously this is a coup to have these three walk in and yeah. have all this intrigue around them. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's worth noting is I think picking out that Heron Mark Blade idea is really, I think, important because we learn later on in the chapter when Rand is getting flirted with and doesn't realize it right away that uh, a lot of the people know basically everything about Rand that has happened since he arrived. They mention that he can play the flute, which as far as Rand is aware, only one commander of one group of guards uh, whose name is Caldevwin, and I remembered that on my own without looking down, and I need you to be proud of that. Um, it feels, feels like a cupcake moment. All right, I'll see you in three <laughs> books, Caldevwin. <laughs> uh, but this, I think, it really highlights the fact that these people are just so starved for information, it seems like, that any new detail that they could get about Rand, they knew he was tall, they knew he had red hair, they knew he could play the flute even, but they didn't know he was carrying a hair in March blade. Mm -hmm. And that is enough to just excite everything. This is a town that seems to be all about the rumors. Yeah, and, and the other vibe I get off of that as I read that scene is it's also um, like it's become too small. This, this is the small town boy in me. Yep. It's like there comes a point in a small town where you've heard all the good gossip and everybody knows everything. So someone new moving in, it's like, yes, like, yeah. here we go. Like, you know, pop the popcorn or the the meme of the guy behind the tree uh, because because it gives you something new to talk about. And so it, it had that kind of claustrophobic feel like yeah. the game has played itself out until we get this fresh infusion. And, and, and it's such a like 
exciting infusion. This isn't just a, a new yeah. family moving in. This is like a family where the dad's having an affair and, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't, I, I should stop the, the metaphor there, but something like that, like there's juicy stuff to talk about here. <laughs> yeah, no, to, this feels, it reminds me a lot of that, like French Regency era, like uh, intrigue that you would get. I'm thinking of like Bridgerton as a television show is fueled around the fact that it's a relatively small community, even in the noble community, just because that's what noble means. There aren't that many of them. <laughs> and so I think you're exactly right to key in on almost the like soap opera-ish drama that is going on behind mm -hmm. the scenes here that we're only getting kind of little glimpses at. Um, I think unless you have a lot to say about Loyal being nervous about going to the party, this takes us pretty much immediately to the two big chunks of this sequence are Rand's conversation with Barthanis and the fact that Tom is at the party I suggest the conversation with Barthanis comes first. I referred to it in my notes as the duel. It seems like Rand is simultaneously trying to make his relative neutrality clear and also give as little information as possible, but make the information he does give maybe intriguing or subtle. Uh, it's actually a tricky scene because I don't think we get as much of Rand's motivation as we do what he's saying out loud. Yeah. And, and it's funny that it's, I mean, I, I don't know who else's point of view it would be, but it is, it's like, we should be in his head, but it's like, maybe he's making those choices so quickly, or they just don't have a lot of thought behind them that we don't get yeah. a, a lot of his kind of explanation of his next move, his next parry, if you will. Um, and so it becomes... It, it becomes deceptively simple. Like you can just yeah. read it and it's like, yeah, the, these are the kind of quickest answers that come to his head. And like you said, I think there is that level, but then there's also the appreciation of maybe he just bumbled his way into the best defense in chess. If I'm yeah. stealing your analysis from before. <laughs> well, and if we're, and if we're thinking about this in terms of even Rand and his power set, if you will, I think it's clear that he's not channeling at any point in this. We right. don't see any references to anything, but if we're talking Tavir, this could very yeah. well be Taviran, right? Rand is just saying the first things that come to his mind. And yet it's worth noting every single thing he says aligns Rand potentially as being against the king, right? He disagrees with the digging up of the statue. He says that he's never met the king on multiple occasions when Barthanis brings up. Um, I think he talks about uh, him being Andorin. Rand's immediate response is to say something that could be taken as a criticism of the grain barges from Andor. Um, there's a lot of it's not clear if it's subtlety on Rand's part or him just like giving, like you're saying, kind of simple, direct answers that all kind of imply the same thing. I'm going to argue maybe even by random chance, if we're thinking about Tavir and nature's playing out even somehow within Rand's head. Yeah, I I think as I have in my head always defined Tavir and it's that warping, right? The yeah. the like, it's not that things change completely. It's just that this conversation is trending one of two directions and each little step is going to help it trend a little more and a little more into the direction it needs to. And, um, you know, there's, there's a character, I think it's in the next chapter and I just promised Lindsay and Ben, I would, I would stop referring <laughs> between them. Uh, but, uh, I think it's in the next chapter. There's like, uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just hang out with the Tavirin cause it's super interesting. And, and that yeah. feels like this moment where it's like, yeah, it's like, it's why wouldn't you want to just watch it happen? Even if it puts you in a little danger.
And speaking of why wouldn't you want to hang out with a Taviran, I think we need to at least briefly talk about three ladies who really want to hang out with a Taviran. <laughs> um, this, as it always does for me, when Robert Jordan veers into the like jokey side of things, it always feels just slightly icky the way he's like, mm. look at gender roles. Aren't they funny? But beyond <laughs> that, it I, I, I got a little chuckle out of it. It's It's not as egregious as it will eventually get. Yeah, it certainly made me laugh a little bit. Uh, I'm also personally doing a uh, rewatch of Mad Men, which mm. is a different experience now that the creator got a little me too'd and you're like, oh, these aren't kind of fun 60s jokes. These are a little icky to steal uh, your phrase. So hit, hit the skip 30 second button if you don't want one of your childhood favorites potentially ruined. But have you ever <laughs> thought of the movie Wally from the perspective of the we Me Too movement? It is horrific. The no, first, the first hour of that movie is a man making romantic advances at a robot woman who doesn't have any interest in him and then goes to sleep and he goes on dates with her while she's unconscious. And oh, no. Her home. <laughs> oh, no. And it's a Weinstein Company movie. No, that just stops. Stop. All right. Edit that out. Uh, so, yeah, well, and and so it, it is that funny thing where um I think, you know, my example of Madman and Wally too, it's like, yeah. those aren't that old. Whereas now we're jumping back to right. something in the early nineties. And it's like, yeah, we should feel a little less comfortable with this. Um, uh, and you know, it's, it's not the worst thing ever, but, um, the fact that there aren't a lot of women around right. uh, other than like sorceresses, uh, and witches, uh, and then these are the kind of quote unquote normal women we encounter is a bit much. Well, and I think this is something that I appreciate about this series as it goes on is I think at this point you can see that Robert Jordan is building a large number of strong, interesting female characters. And in this first couple books, we're still 70% in Rand's head. And so we don't get as much of them. And I think we can see this potentially eventually trending in the direction where I do see it as a story with lots of really interesting female characters whose heads we're in and have enough diversity that we can really see it's it's not like tokenism and entirely just going down these stereotypical routes. But when it's Rand thinking about women, I'm I'm sorry, Robert Jordan is accurately portraying the way that 18 year old <laughs> boys think about women sometimes. So yeah. uh, it, it, it gets a little it, challenging as we go through that. And they're like cool guy, uncle, the traveling minstrel. Who's yep. like, yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, it feels it, it does feel accurate to those characters, even if it's uh, a little icky. But, you know, that I, I mean, to to defend it exactly as you are, like that's how we should portray these things so that we can talk more openly about the forces that lead 18 year old boys to be that way and so on. A hundred percent, which leads us <laughs> to one of the forces that leads 18 year old boys to be that way. 60 year old men like Tom. Um, any thoughts on Tom's reappearance in this chapter? I, I think it's well drawn as like, oh, look, he's here, but he still doesn't want to be directly involved. Um, was there anything to take away from it beyond that from a first time reader's perspective? Just surprised because I thought as soon as he was here that there would be some event or excuse that would bring him into the adventure. Right. And, right. Um, you know, as he comes and goes in this chapter, it's like, oh, well, if he's going to join up with the party again, it's not yet. And and I think in my head, I'm still expecting that to happen. So it, it really came out as surprise, like, oh, OK, like not yet. He's still 
well, he's the 60 year old guy with the lady back in his, his room yep. that he wants to go back to. So uh, powerful motivation not to join up with uh, the weird party headed out to go into certain death and danger. <laughs> that, that sounds accurate. And I have nothing else to add other than Tom's a little creepy, but it's also hilarious. Um, so I think that leads us pretty directly into chapter 33, a message from the dark, which is the same chapter but darker. Uh, so we begin with Rand asking whether or not Matt is actually hurt because he's a, still a little bit of a rube. The response is, of course not. We just needed to get you because we found where the trail leads. Uh, they have found out that the trail leads to a garden and that it doesn't appear as if there is any trail leading out. And so they suspect Trollocs are still within. Um, Hurin has been able to gather Matt and Loyal, but was not able to get either Ingtar or Varen away from the party. Um, and Rand kind of seemingly impulsively decides, uh, let's check it out. Uh, Loyal at this point can sense as they get a little bit closer that there is a waygate on the other side. And so Rand decides to poke his head over the wall. There are no Trollocs. And so they all go over the wall and find that there is a waygate, which presumably Paddenfane and the Trollocs must have gone through. Um, at this point, Rand decides to see whether or not there are any signs of uh, the passage on the other side of the waygate. So he lifts the Avendasaur leaf and begins opening the waygate. And on the other side of it is Machin Shin, the Black Wind. And it not only says all of its creepy, scary things, but underneath it, it also repeatedly says Rand Al Thor's name, specifically his last name, the way that Thane usually says it. At this point, it is actually Loyal who manages to leap into action and tries to put the Avendasaur leaf back to try to close the door, but not before Rand kind of instinctively reaches out and grabs the one power and seems kind of consumed with the thought of destroying Machin Shin until the door completely closes and he lets go of the one power. Um, at this point, they realize that not only has Fane gone through the waygate, but he, they cannot follow because Machin Shin is blocking. So they go to leave the garden. They go to leave the party. They see Varen. They tell her, hey, we've got to leave the party. They all get ready to go. And this is when Barthanis pulls them aside asks whether or not the answer is no, they can't stay. And so Barthanis decides at this point to give Rand a message that he has been given from Padden Fane, that he is waiting on Toman Head, and that if Rand does not come to Toman Head quickly enough, uh, Fane will begin destroying things that Rand loves. Um, at this point, the group goes back to the inn. They have a brief conversation with Varen and the rest, and Varen decides there is only one possibility. They need to go to the Waygate at Steading Sofu, where they believe that they will then be able to make their way to Toman Head. Um, it's notable that Loyal is not the most thrilled about this idea from the very brief glimpse that we get at him. Um, that is the chapter. It's a lot of moving us towards where we need to go next, in my opinion. Not a whole lot of like big character moments, but was there anything in the chapter that jumped out at you or you thought like that's the thing that excites me about where we're going? Uh, I mean, I think I alluded to this. I think it was last episode or the episode before. Apologies for not remembering our conversation perfectly. But I was like, oh, I think the Toman's head thing isn't going to be for another book because we're working our way further and further east when 
it's all to the far west. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know that I forgot or just hadn't occurred to me that that we have these different ways of traveling quickly. Um, yeah. You know, the the one the the <clears throat> upside down that Rand was in earlier, this book certainly helped, but not to the extent of um the way gates and so it's like oh right so yeah. so now i think i'd have to revise and say like oh maybe we are really going to in these last 200 pages get there and and see what happens uh between those um other than that i think most of my notes are are kind of little things uh that happened in the chapter like you said it's it's not it's it's a plot heavy one an action heavy one not not a character let's unpack let's debate things chapter yeah and I think that's kind of the right read is I think this is a chapter that's very much here to reset our expectations. Robert Jordan really likes to play around with we have a direction that we're going and we're kind of working towards something and we're building all the pieces. And then he wants to deploy those pieces in an unexpected way at the end of the book. Right. I think that's what he did in the first book where we were very much driving towards Tarvalon. And then all of a sudden the way gates appear and we're actually going towards the northeast completely off of the map. Or um, in this book, it seems that you're exactly right. We are all kind of led down the what is going to happen in Carrion that diverts us from Toman's head for an entire book. And instead, suddenly we need to get there as soon as possible. Matt is in a bad way, which is, mm. I think, maybe a good place to begin this, because when Rand first uh, returns to Hurin, it becomes clear that Matt is actually doing even worse than he was described in the previous chapter. Things like it seems like things are declining relatively quickly. Um, so this kind of leads us to our first character moment, if you will. Matt, Perrin, Hurin, and Rand having a little bit of a conversation outside of the garden. Any character moments there? There's a couple of tiny things I have in my notes, but early chapter. Um, I'm not going to place it correctly, perhaps, but there is, uh, just to your point, there's a gesture that in this world, this city full of people who abuse their servants, Matt stands out as being particularly abused. Like yeah. the other servants are like, oh, are you OK? Like he must be a really bad master. And so I thought to to the point you were bringing up is like, that's what dramatized it the most for me. It's like, oh. This is really bad. Like everybody outside of himself can see this. Yeah. And it's worth noting that the lords treat all of the other servants so poorly that Hurin has given up on calling Rand Lord Rand. That's how bad <laughs> everyone is treated. And Matt looks worse than that. So yeah. you're exactly right. I think the the clock is definitely ticking on Matt and the dagger. And that it seems like is forcing Varen and Rand's hand at the end of the chapter when we're debating how do we get to Toman Head. They are willing to take some risks now in terms of how do they get there quickly rather than slowly. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting in this section is how Loyal has very much changed in terms of his positioning re kind of relative to Rand and Matt. I think once upon a time, he was very much the voice of slow and reason. And it seems like Loyal in this chapter, while he is the one who tells Rand, like, be a little cautious, make sure you don't get caught. He's just as quick over that uh, fence as everyone else is and seems to actually be the active character in multiple places mm. of this chapter. Uh, did you notice that little shift in Loyal? Or uh, I think this has kind of been subtly happening over the course of uh, this entire book. And this is the place where it just happened to click for me how far he is from where we started. 
Yeah, certainly a lot different than the Ogier we met just hanging out at an inn and seemingly content to read his books and, yeah. and learn that way and, and kind of meander and travel, um, particularly in the action set piece in the middle here that, yeah. that you know, um, both kind of give credit to the other, but just the fact that it's as much loyal as Rand, um, at least from the way I interpreted those events, it's like, oh, okay, he's really stepping up and he's really changed. And it is like you're saying, a member of the party now, right? Yeah. These weren't the skills he was selected for, but they are uh, really important. And, you know, I think in your summary of the last chapter, he sensed the way gate as soon as they got on the property. Yeah. Um, I think you skipped that probably no, justifiably right. to get to the, it's mainly in this chapter, but to me, that was like, Oh, of course. And it like cracked it immediately. Like, yep, there's, that's why they're all here, but not here. Um, and so to see all that, uh, again, kind of quickly come to pass and and bring back all these things we've, you know, kind of forgotten. It's yeah. funny that we spent the first 100, 150 pages getting reminded of things. The Waygates weren't really there or among them. Yep. And it's like when this came roaring back, it's like, oh, wow. Like, of course, like, that's right. There are those things. The mythology involves these. Yeah, and I think that one of the really interesting things as we get into the middle section of this chapter is that I think pretty much everyone serves a role in this chapter that is different from what they were originally intended to, right? Matt's illness is much more useful than his ability to sense the dagger. Curran seems to have the ability to actually play the game better than a lot of the others. He's the one getting a lot of information. Um, Loyal's ability to sense the waygate turns out to be much more important than the fact that people are interested in Carrie Ennin. And of course, uh, Rand just has all of the political skills somehow, possibly through blind luck. Um, it seems like all of these characters are actually kind of doing things they weren't intended to. Taviran, once again, isn't it fun? Um, <laughs> this, I think, leads us into the emergence of Machin Shin and Rand inadvertently or maybe kind of subconsciously channeling the power and then immediately being consumed by the thought to destroy Machin Shin, which I don't think is something I had considered to be possible or sane. And so I'm at mm. least questioning whether this is some hint of madness, especially given that in the same chapter, uh, Matt actually drops an accidental hint to Loyal that Rand may be going mad. Yeah. So before I tackle some of what that is, I think I need some help with the basics of what happens here. So let me run it by you and then yep. help me piece it together. So they open the way gate by turning the leaf, removing the leaf, and it opens up. And it's like instantly the the black wind yep. comes out. And that's Mashin Shin. Those are Correct. the same thing. Those yes. are the two names for the same thing. And I think what got me a little confused here is I always am tracking the black and the white, the light and the dark. And it's not always as simple as it seems like it should be. I, I use that word hesitatingly. It's not yep. that everything good is light and everything bad is dark as we're kind of traditionally used to. It's kind of mixed. So uh, Rand feels the light within him and the light we feel within him is the Sidene. Correct. But the Sidene is the dark side of the black and white cookie. That is correct. <laughs> so uh, I, I actually want to point you to the 
image. I don't know if you'll have it in front of you, but uh, check afterwards the image of the dragon's fang that comes at the beginning of some chapters, because the way that that is generally represented is a white fang that has black around it. And this is also the representation on the television show, the way that the, the power is kind of represented is the power, whether it's Sidine or Sidar, is generally represented as a light, right? It's this light that Rand grasps at when he's in the flame in the void. Um, we've heard um, Egwene describe Sidar as being like opening up to the light of the sun if you are a flower. Uh, but the way that is kind of been corrupted is that there is a taint on the power of Sidine. And so that's often kind of described as like oily or slick on the outside of it. And so this, I think, becomes the problem in this world is there is a kind of divide between light is good and dark is evil. And then there is also this kind of common cultural association of the male side with darkness and the female side with light. And I think we are kind of increasingly learning that is not because Sidine itself is evil, but because kind of the black taint around it is evil Mm. or bad. And so that's the trick, right, is that the world does describe dark as being both male and evil but i think one of those is true evil is black but it is not necessarily true that the one power the male side sidine which is also associated with black is necessarily that association makes as much hmm. sense um so it, it's, it's kind of a cultural versus um more moral distinction that gets a little bit messy within this particular culture and so to continue on, that was very helpful. I'm not dismissing that at all. I dismiss you and everything you stand for, but I, I appreciate the knowledge. Uh, so um, <laughs> I can't get over my own joke. Uh, and I did, timed that perfectly, listeners, for when Tyler was taking a drink of water and yes. he almost drowned, I think. Um, so to continue just to help me disambiguate, you're being my big Wikipedia disambiguation thread. Um, when he has in the past felt the flame and the void. Yep. The void is kind of a dark power. So I'm thinking particularly when Celine was like, grab the void, grab, grab your power. She was, she was, I don't want to use channel. She was suggesting she was manipulating him to reach for the darkness, not the one power. Is that correct? So this also gets a little bit tricky. So, Rand was originally taught the flame in the void as a method of controlling his emotions, right? And so um, I don't think of the void in the flame in the void metaphor as necessarily being bad or evil. I think of it as being empty. And so I think what is ambiguous from what Celine was doing is I think it is not clear whether she was encouraging him to go into the flame in the void because she wanted that empty, emotionless state that she kind of seems to value and was basically saying, like, if you can pull yourself away from emotions, you can kind of be rational in some way. That could be what she was doing. And then I think the implication is by removing those emotions, he would potentially be more manipulatable or more likely to embrace the like glory or whatever she was pushing him towards. The other possibility is that Celine knows that emptying yourself of all of those emotions leaves you in a void with nothing 
but the one power and if you can channel. And so Rand was trying to get him in that position because that is where he's most likely to be vulnerable to accidentally or subconsciously channeling the one power. So I think it could be either of those things or both simultaneously, but that's kind of, again, the, the two metaphors at once trick with the flame in the void. It is both a method of controlling the emotions. And I think inadvertently, as we've seen with uh, women channeling the power and the metaphor of the, the bud, it seems like the flame in the void may have been originally derived from a way that men taught themselves to channel the one power, or at least it's working in that way for Rand. Okay. And then, so back to this scene, he channels and the metaphor he's using over and over again is that he feels like he's on fire and yes. it gets more and more intense as he channels further and further. And so we're meant to interpret that. I mean, fire naturally means it feels like he's being consumed, right? Yep. And that as the power takes him over, the the kind of moment Loyal stops him feels like it's really saving Rand from being consumed by the power itself, which yeah. we don't, it could be madness that takes him over, That that is the consuming force or something else. But we kind of understand that relationship as what Rand was doing is what actually stopped the black wind. And then he weakened it to the point that Loyal could slip in and just shut the door by changing the mechanism, turning the leaf. But it really was the two of them that, that did it. Uh, assuming that Rand is a reliable narrator, which given that we are talking about fighting off the madness, I'm not entirely willing to concede. But if Rand is a reliable narrator, then yes, I think that is exactly the right interpretation here. Um, the one thing I would say is in terms of kind of what exactly is going on here in terms of resisting or holding back, it seems like Rand is trying to almost get himself to do. I would say there are two culprits. One is exactly as you are saying, or not culprits, um, suspects. One is, as you're saying, it could be madness, right? Is he holding that off? But it's also worth noting in the chapters that we were with Egwene and Nynaeve when they were being introduced to the one power, um, they were told that it is possible to channel too much of the power and do what is known in the White Tower as burning yourself out, where you lose mm -hmm. the ability to, to channel because you tried to channel too much at once. So that is also something that could have been happening here. Rand hasn't learned the control of how to stop himself from taking in too much of the power. So if he was just inadvertently drawing more and more, that burning sensation could have been what's described as the Aes Sedai as burning out. Um, if he had gone too much further, it's possible he would have lost the ability to channel. So all of that brings us back to your initial question, which is how is this affecting him? How is like, how should we read this moment? And then I think with all of what you just reiterated slash taught me, I would say that we should be very suspicious that each kind of intense use of the power is further weakening the barrier of Rand's sanity. Yeah, and it I seem think, to me how to interpret that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that um, Tom's story of Owen is going to be very illustrative here because Rand's best case scenario at the beginning of all of this was if I stop channeling now, Owen made it three years. And so if we're thinking of, you know, let, let's be charitable, let's call it three to five years is you are fully resisting. That's how long it takes for madness to start to set in. Every time we have an event like this where Rand possibly channels an enormous amount of the power, 
we've got to start thinking about how much is that clock shrinking because Rand could very well be a little more advanced than Owen. He's already channeled enough power to destroy an army of Trollocs. So this is something I think we should be keeping an eye on. Very much reminds me of um, Jason Aaron's Mighty Thor book. And this is slight spoilers for that comic, but slight spoilers for the movie Thor Love and Thunder, which really ruined that material. And I disagree with that entirely. Oh, no. Um, But uh, so the the kind of cool balance in the center of that is that Jane uh, Foster has uh, cancer and is going through chemotherapy, but she also becomes Thor. And every time she becomes Thor, the the chemo radiation is kind of expelled from her body, yeah. which then means when she returns to being Jane, her cancer hasn't been fought and is coming back on stronger and stronger. She's basically not treating it. Yeah. And so there are a lot of arcs in that comic series where it's like, I want to do anything but become Thor and I have to become Thor and it's going to kill me. And I, the movie plays with that a little, but yeah. um, it feels like that. So that's kind of where Rand is headed. That Rand is can't, constantly looking for reasons not to be channeling in a world where that needs him to channel over and over again. Yeah, no. And I think that's exactly right. And to me, this is the part of the scene where I lose Rand for just a little bit, because like I was saying, I like self-aware Rand and this is Rand acting from his subconscious or from whatever is driving him to grasp that power. And I'm much more interested in Rand thinking about what did I just do? How much time did I take off the clock rather than I did it? I held it back. I'm going to move on now, even though I just channeled. So, um, interesting scene. I'm much more interested to see Rand grapple with it than I am to actually watch it occur. Um, Unless you have much else to say about that, um, I think we are then on to Barthanas making it very clear just how evil he is. He's carrying messages for Padden Fane and acknowledges the Trollocs. So, ick. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the language was interesting where he says someone with a claim on him. Yeah. Um, And that took me way back to the prologue that those people weren't there mm. like signed on because they're happy and like card carrying members. It's like they have a claim, they have a reason to be there. And so um, not that I think Barthanis is like a great guy, but it also sounded a little bit like, like, you know, if it's revealed the Trollocs have his kid or something and are yeah. going to murder the kid, um, he would do whatever they could. It feel, feels like that kind of trope to me, like he's being controlled in some way. Um, but boy, is the message like couldn't be more clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Time to go. Uh, we're going here. We're going to have it out. Um, very much feels like one of those messages that comes up towards the you know start of the third act where it's like, meet me for the showdown. And yep. everything just bends towards the showdown after that. So I assume that's where we're headed. Yeah, I just watched the first of what I will be assume will be a million showdowns in the show Legend of Korra. So it, I saw exactly that trope about 40 minutes before I started uh, <laughs> recording this show. Uh, I think the last thing that I have here in my notes is just we're going to a setting that should be interesting. Loyal has not wanted to go to those. Um, so 
Any thoughts? Misa, on where Misa we cannot are going? go there. Misa been banished. Is all that was in my mind. Like <laughs> accurate and good impression. <laughs> oh man, uh, he'll never hear this. So I will say, our friend Carl has a co-host that has a way better uh, Jar Jar than I do. But it it did feel very much like that same dynamic. Yeah. Like we should. Oh, I got the solution. We should go where where I'm from. And then it's like, no, I can't go there because I'm banished. A very funny moment in Phantom Menace. Uh, in the mix, I only want to add, um, I thought it was interesting. Varen says that she has discovered in some basements a connection between Faldara and Toman's head. That felt like new information to me, or am I just crazy? Uh, you are not remembering that Varen was the one who stumbled upon Rand and Dark Prophecy in the basement of the Faldara dungeon when Padden Fane had written in blood the stuff about Toman. There it is. So here's where I'm mes- mistaken. Faldara is the city that Ingtar runs. That is not yes. not the one with the Forsaken. Which what's that one? Oh, you are thinking of Shadar Lagoth. Shadar. All right. I mean, they are very similar. I'll give you credit for that. That, that, that that's like a B plus on a vocabulary based right. exam. It's like okay, you're, I'll take you, it. You knew what you were saying. Yeah, I, I got the right verb uh, or the right vowel sounds. So yeah. okay, uh, and then yes, agreed. That uh, hey, let's go see Estetting. I'm excited about that. That's something I want to see and and am excited to read on. Uh, I think I peaked a little and well, I wrote down the chapter titles and I can see that next week we're probably getting there. <laughs> yes. Uh, the fact that we have chapter 34, the wheel weaves and chapter 35 setting. Sofu probably lets us know we are going to make our way to setting. Sofu. <laughs> but before we do, I just have to say, if there is a massive trope in fantasy that you've identified as not a fantasy reader around the you know party and the intrigue at the party, um, I would like to suggest that we are about to get one of the all-time night after the party chapters Mm. so get ready for this one um greg i'm gonna throw to you to take us out of the episode only to say that one of your predictions is going to come true next episode and we're not all going to be super thrilled about it uh take us into the next episode sir uh yes on and on we go and you know i think last season as we get to this part of the book we wore out the roller coaster clicking up the hill metaphor uh so i i won't repeat that but i will say that um you know i think anybody who really loves fantasy and really loves thick fantasy books knows that feeling we talked about at the beginning of the show where it's like you reach a point and you're just like, I have to keep going and I can't put this down. Um, And I think that's where we are. And so we are so glad you're here with us, joining us week to week uh, as we close in on the end of book two and get ready for uh, book three. So thanks for joining us again. And we'll see you next time through the glass columns. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey.
If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.